0: Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a, uh, it's a pleasure, a great pleasure, to be with you this morning. And I thank uh, Pastor Mitch for the very uh, condensed version of a three-hour conversation that he gave you in my introduction. And he spared you all uh, a lot of words that I shared with him. Um, and I've gotten to know him rather well over these past few years. It's been a tremendous blessing to be able to know um, Pastor Mitch and many of the folks who are in the uh, in the orbit I think of uh, Trinity Baptist Church in Montville and our brethren there and elsewhere, uh, particularly in Pittsburgh, where there is a rather a dearth of uh, reformed Baptist churches. Um, Dalton and I met because uh, we attended the same seminary, but also because he took classes for me, so he was a student of mine and uh, I'm pleased to have him as now a colleague in doctoral, uh, in doctoral programs at Southern Seminary and also as a, a very great friend, he and Danae and their beautiful daughter. Anyway, on with the, uh, the purpose of our gathering this morning. Let us bow together in a word of prayer before I begin. Gracious God and our Father, we thank you for the air, the, the, uh, the beautiful warm air that you've blessed us with the past few days, the sunshine, the spring flowers, and all of the things that have been created uh, by your spoken word at the beginning of a time, which also you created on this earth. And we thank you that you have given us the opportunity to hear from you in your special revelation, hear about things that happened before we found our way onto this earth. But Father, all things bright and beautiful came from your spoken command, and continue to persist persist under your providential care. Father, we ask you to bless, uh, to bless the exposition of your word this morning. Let nothing come forth from my mouth that would in any way counter what you have said. Let your truth proceed first, and my words falter wherever necessary that it may proceed without error. Let nothing in our hearts as an assembled congregation prevent your word from reaching them, from being applied to us by your Holy Spirit, uh, that we might grow, we might flourish, and if there is any in this room who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, has not been washed by the blood of the Lamb, may that happen under the preached word uh, that you have given us, applied by your Holy Spirit, accomplished by the death, the resurrection, and the eternal life of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray this day and all days. Amen. Conversation uh, of the past couple of days has actually been about the subject of this particular message, Genesis one twenty, or the last few verses of Genesis one, and and perhaps why I selected those as a text upon where, from which to preach this morning. And uh, there are many reasons for that, but one of them is that we live in a very confused world. Uh, One of the things that I have learned in my life is that if you want to understand how God intended things to be, go back and see how he did it in the beginning. And uh, that's precisely what we will do this morning, is go back to the book of beginnings and understand, once again, we all know these verses well, some of us can recite them from heart practically, We'll go back to these verses again and look and understand what God accomplished in the beginning so that we might understand uh, after our fall, not his fall, our fall, after our failure, not his failure, how he intends to accomplish his glory again. Uh, If you look around you, you will notice that the glory of creation is still with us. We just sang a hymn called All Things Bright and Beautiful. And we enumerated many of the things that are bright and beautiful in this life. And yet we live suffering from pain and from difficulty, from aging, from death, from uh, strife amongst ourselves, from confusion about who we are and why we are here and what we're supposed to be doing. And as Dalton reminded us earlier, uh, we all suffer from these sins. So let us begin uh, to exposit this, this text this morning, understand uh, what it was that God created, why he created it, and what he thought of it, as well as how that has tremendous implications for how we are supposed to live our lives and the destination to which we're intended. My friends, this morning, know that man was created in the image of God, and that God gives the gospel to all in the hope that they will hear and obey. Our hope. God knows who will hear and obey. We do not know. So it is our hope that those who hear the gospel will obey it. And God offers it to all. In the beginning, as Pastor Mitch read, God created the heavens and the earth. But when we get to the sixth day of creation, uh we understand what the cat we begin to understand what the capstone of that creation is it wasn't just a static story oh look here's the world all the beautiful things in it here they are for you but god proceeded in a particular order and he did it for a particular reason he did it because he intended to accomplish his purposes through it and so from the very beginning god first separates the waters above from the waters below and then God separates light from darkness and God separates dry land from water and God separates or adds vegetation and he adds all of these things as part of his providential work to sustain life on this earth. It wasn't intended to be a static thing where God would just create it and then walk away but God intended that it be there, that it persist, that it continue and that he capped off his creation with the creation of you and me. It was Martin Luther who said that we were all created on the sixth day of creation. And Martin Luther is quite right. We were all created on the sixth day of creation in God's spoken word. Male and female created he them. He created man in his own image. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing slightly there, but the words are before you. He created man in his image. And where do things go from there? But before it went, before what happened happened, God pronounced everything that he did very good. Right? And when we get into Genesis 2, which we're not going to cover in detail this morning, but we understand from Genesis 2 that how things played out a little bit more in the creation of human beings. God created Adam, and then God created Eve, and he moved them to the, and moved them to the garden, and everything else unfolded from that point. But I want to stick with the text for, for the moment Go back to first verse 26, excuse me, God created man in his own image, or he said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and so on. I want you to notice the shift in pronouns there that happens not just with God, but happens with mankind. Those shifts in pronouns are significant. A lot of ink has been spilled about what God meant when he said, let us create man in our image. And if you look at commentaries, you will see probably six different theories or posits about what God meant when he was referring to himself and said, let us make man in our image. And some people want to be very conservative and say, well, God was talking about the heavenly host because the trinity of God was not revealed in Genesis chapter 1. And others would say, well, God's talking about himself and the earth, uh, that all of these things were there. So he's speaking collectively for all of creation when he says, let us make man in our image. Those things are a little bit of a hard sell, don't you think? God is talking about himself. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. But then verse 27 shifts the pronouns, and it says, God created man in his own image. And so there is a reflection in those verses of the triune nature of God. It's not spelled out in great detail. We know that the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Genesis 1 because God said, God created the heavens and earth. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. I will always remember that in the King James. It's how I learned it, it stuck with me forever. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And we know from John chapter 1 and following that also present at creation, before creation, not a created being is Jesus Christ himself, our Lord and Savior. Everything that was made was made by him, and he was in everything that was made. Everything is made by the triune God. So whether or not you're willing to accept that the uh, the plural pronoun in, in verse 26 plural pronouns excuse me in verse 26 refer to the triune god at least leave your mind open to the recognition of the fact that god knows who he is that god knows precisely who he is and he is free to describe himself, uh, we would call it, if the, if the king of England did it now and said, uh, we will do this, we would refer to that as the royal we. He's talking about one person making a decision. King of England can't make any real decisions any longer, but back in the day, used to be able to and use that sort of phrasing. God, I do not believe here, is re-referring to himself with a royal we in any sense except the fact that he is the ultimate royalty. He existed before all of the things he created, including the heavens and the earth. He continues to exist and will exist long, past, long after these things fade and these things go away. And so, God of all has the right to refer to himself with plural pronouns and to do so without flinching or without wondering if he's overstepping himself. God has no ability to overstep himself. He sets all the rules. But the pronouns about God aren't the most, aren't, aren't the focus of what we're talking about this morning. God also says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. And we see there another shift in pronouns, do we not? God did not say, I'm going to create a man and let him rule over all things. He says, let, their, let us create man according to our image and according to our likeness and let them rule, which means all of us, you and me, from Adam and Eve, our first parents, on down the line to our children, our children's children, until whatever it is that God, until our Lord returns for his church, and these things pass away, and eternity comes to pass. Let them rule. So it's not something about, this isn't an issue where we have to figure out who's in charge, Humanity has been placed in charge under the sovereignty of God. It's that sovereignty of God that leads to so many problems, especially here in America, where we don't understand the word sovereignty. Uh, the only time we generally encounter the word sovereignty in America, or sovereign, is um, is in the concept of eminent domain or, or sovereign immunity where the government excuses itself from, from having to bear the brunt of lawsuits or eminent domain where the government can take over property for some public purpose, uh, compensating the owners, the government, uh, our government, by the people, for the people. Where did by God, under God, for, for the people go to? but the government is sovereign in this country. Uh, But people in Europe understand it a whole lot better where they have kings and queens, and even though those kings and queens have a whole lot less power, they understand the background of that as someone who has the authority and the ability to rule and control their lives. God is sovereign, and he does not give up his sovereignty lightly. Let us make man in our image... Uh, Let them rule over all of the things of the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so, in verse 27, God puts into action what he has decreed. He says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. For emphasis, he says it twice, that we are created in the image of God. More ink, perhaps, has been spilled on the subject of what is meant by the image of God than even has been spilt about God's use of plural pronouns to refer to himself in in verse 26. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Does it mean that we look like God physically? Well, that would be a little difficult since God is spirit and he is without body, parts, and passions. But definitely, God has made it clear that we are created in his image. He is not created in our image. He has not fashioned himself after the things that we believe he should be. He has not fashioned himself according to our wishes and our wants and our desires. He has fashioned us to follow him. Such a hard concept for independent-minded people to grab onto that God has created us to follow him as is said in the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 1 what is the chief end of man the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever it appears in the Baptist catechism i always forget which question number it is i think it's number 3 Uh, But anyway, the, the sentiment is the same. We were created in the image of God to glorify God, to enjoy God, to worship God, to respond to God, and to know who God is. Paul affirms that for us in the book of Romans where he talks about the fact that everybody knows that there is a God. Not all choose to obey God, not all choose to follow God, many choose to hate God, despise God, wish God were dead, wish God were gone, make themselves the gods of the universe to do all of the things that happened actually when Eve took a bite of fruit that she was forbidden to eat, but that's how the world thinks, the world at large And those who think differently, those who know that we were created to obey God and to follow God and to live according to God's precepts are those that God has called, recalled from darkness into light, has restored, to a degree, that distorted part of the image that we have of him. But there is something incredibly important to remember here, and it's something that no Christian should ever forget. Everybody, everybody you have ever seen Everybody you ever will see, no matter whether they sit in church on a Sunday morning or they walk through the shopping mall or they're out playing on their bikes or doing whatever they're doing on a Lord's Day morning, everybody was made in the image of God. Everybody is an image bearer. No matter how twisted, no matter how distorted their morality may be, they were made in the image of God. That is, a ble- that is glory ascribed to God. It is not glory ascribed to mankind. God has glorified mankind by making, making us in his image, but that glory does not stem from you and me. It stems from God alone. And so we say with the reformers, uh, all glory to god alone god is the source and the, or the source and root of all that is good all things bright and beautiful god filled or god made man and woman according to his image according to his likeness There obviously are physical differences between men and women quite intentionally. Uh, There's plenty of proof as to why those physical differences exist running around within these walls this morning. We call them our offspring. And so God made us that way so that we could complete his creation mandate that we be fruitful and multiply that we have children. It is not possible for some to have children. We prayed for someone this morning who is looking to adopt, I assume because uh, they have no ability or wish to add to their family and cannot do so by natural means. It is not a blight against someone who cannot be fruitful and multiply that God gave this command. It is not a reason to look down on that person and say you are less worthy as a human being because you cannot do these things. You are still... you who cannot bear children on your own are still a bearer of the image of God. And we should have compassion on all who bear the image of God and for whatever reason cannot fulfill all of the things that God has set forth for man to do, whatever that might be. And we need to talk about some more of those things this morning. We need to think about those kinds of things as Christians because too often we get the attitude and the mindset as Christians that we are, because we are a people set apart, we are made into a holy people by the grace of God, by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we have the right to look down on other people who are not in the same place we are in. But the only reason why any of us can consider himself or herself to be saved is because of of the work of God, not anything that is within you and me. Because Paul reminds us so eloquently in so few words that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. All means you and me too. And we do it repeatedly, and we do it often. And we have our favorite sins, the ones that we hold on to, and we we try to, we say we're going to try to work on them, but yet we go back to them almost as quickly. Sometimes uh, the worst sins I commit are the ones that only my windshield hears as I'm driving down the road. I don't know about you. I have no idea. I can't follow you all around to find out what your favorite sins are. But you know what they are, and you know that they need work. And they continue to need the work of God that you might be separated from those sins. There is no inferiority in men and women. There is no, nothing in Scripture that says that women are made lesser than men. God said, let us make man in our image, male and female, created he them, them, all equal in the sense of being image bearers, in the sense of being uh, worthy, worthy of God's care and concern and providence and God's offer of the gospel. The differences in men and women are differences in role. Role does not imply inequality. Role implies jobs to do. The job of a man is different from the job of a woman. The job of a woman is different from the job of a man but they are to complement one another. They are to build one another up. A man and woman united in marriage have a completion that no other two people can have because they can naturally, assuming that there is nothing physically wrong, they can bear children or they have born children or they have been able to adopt children and they've been able to care for them in the way that God has ordained. And it is a wonderful and a beautiful thing. It is something to be admired and appreciated and adored because God created it that way. So when we look out at the world and we see all this beauty, but we know that underneath this beauty is darkness. We've talked, uh, several of us have talked about cities and blight and neighborhood sprawl and all kinds of things that are going on that seem to be impeding with creation and the beauty, that which God said was very good. How did it get here? Why do we have to contend with the sicknesses and the weaknesses and the strife and all of the things that we have to contend with as the people of God, as people on this earth? We know the answer to that. All we have to do is turn to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, if you think about it, well, we, we, we say this so glibly. We say this so easily. Adam and Eve were created in holiness and righteousness. We look back at the words of the confession and we say, you know, they were created in innocence. They, they were without sin. All of these things. But we kind of just pass over it too quickly. What did that mean? Well, it meant that they walked around naked. They had not a stitch of clothing on and nobody was ashamed. It was the way it was supposed to be. There are people in this world today who think that it's perfectly proper to walk around without any clothes on. We call them nudist colonies. Uh, But they still go apart to do that, even though they take all their clothes off and spend their time together that way, even with children, unfortunately. But most people don't walk around in public without any clothes on. Most people who are right and and right-thinking put clothing on at least before they walk out their door and probably while they're walking around in their homes. Why did that change? It changed for one very, very simple reason. Adam and Eve disobeyed the one commandment that they had the possibility of being able to disobey. It was one simple commandment. They ate from the tree in the midst of the garden. The one that Adam was commanded, Eve was not there yet. Adam was commanded not to eat from the tree in the midst of the garden, uh, lest, if you do, you will surely die. And the strength of the Hebrew there is so intense, you will surely die. And so what happens? Eve comes along, Adam is supposed to teach her that commandment. Adam either fell short or Eve didn't understand. We're not sure which, we're not told which. But we do know this. When the serpent asks Eve if God told her that she should or could not eat of the tree of the garden, she said, you shall not eat it. He said, you shall not eat it or touch it or you will surely die. Eve did not understand the commandment properly. Eve fell susceptible to the temptation of Satan. There are all kinds of things in there. It's probably another three sermons to talk about Genesis 3, if, if, the, if I kept it brief. So we're not going to do that today. But what happened is that Eve succumbed to the temptation of the serpent, the embodied form of of our enemy, the father of lies. And she broke the one commandment that she could break. It would have never occurred to Eve to murder somebody. It would have never occurred to Adam to murder somebody. It would have been impossible for them to like because it would have been totally outside of their nature. The law of God was written on their hearts. The only special revelation that Adam and Eve had was a commandment not to eat from the tree in the midst of the garden. It was the one commandment that they knew, it's the one commandment they could break, and it is the one commandment that they did break. And everything else that we see results from that act. Eve, under temptation, ate from the apple or ate from the tree, whatever that fruit was, in the midst of the garden, and Adam, without any temptation whatsoever, stupidly took some and ate it too. And so as a result, we all suffer from that sin. Why? Because we sinned in them and we fell in them. That means we were created when they were created. We weren't procreated yet, but we were created. The mind of God conceived of man before he ever carried out his plan and his commands, his decrees took effect in his words in Genesis 1. And so now, the image of God gets distorted. But it is so important that we understand that the image of God was distorted, it wasn't lost. We, haven't, but we are not people who lost, our Im, lost the image of God and had it, had it given back to us in full measure. We had nothing, and then we had everything. God's restraining hand remains in force and effect in the universe. God, by his common grace, uh, continues to make it possible for churches such as this to meet on a Lord's Day morning, to gather for the worship of God. There is still a recognition within man, all mankind, that there is a God and they may distort who God is and do and they may make God into something that he is not or they may make themselves into gods that they are not. But the idea and the recognition that there is a God is present in each and every person. It is part of, it must be part of, the image-bearing nature of man. I don't anticipate that my two little rescue dogs have any idea of who God is explicitly. They weren't created in the image of God. They were created by God, given the breath of life by God. You can read it in Genesis 1. They are living things according to the definition of Genesis 1. You and I were created in the image of God. We know who God is even before, to some degree, to a distorted degree, before conversion by the Holy Spirit of God, before a call to saving faith comes to our hearts, from he who draws us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to believe in him to believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to be united to Christ, united by the very same power that called us, the Holy Spirit of God. What an amazing thing that is. So we know more than the average unbel- than the unbeliever does. All right, we've been illuminated to more than the unbeliever can know. We have, been, we have been given the illumination to know that the words that are written in this book are true. There are millions of unbelievers who have studied this book, not this one particularly, but books like this one, and have not believed a word they say. Some of them are even found in churches. Some of them are professors in seminaries. And yet, they still know that there is a God. And as Paul told us in the the opening chapter of Romans, the wicked suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. All mankind was created in the image of God. All mankind can hear the gospel presented to them. Mankind will choose, I use that word carefully and I'll, I'll be explicit about how I mean it, Um, either to respond to God according to his irresistible grace, that call of the Holy Spirit that is impossible to not answer, or in their unbelief and in their reprobation to defy it, to deny God and to curse God and die. But all know that he exists. Our position in all of this is that we don't know who will come to saving faith. We don't know who will reject God utterly and die to eternal punishment. We cannot know that because we do not have access to that decree of God, the decree of election, the decree of reprobation, if you will call it that. The decision of God to to call some to saving faith and all others not according to his good pleasure. For whatever reasons he chooses. I don't know what those reasons are. You don't know what those reasons are. God knows exactly what those reasons are. And God's reasons are good. And his, right, his judgments are righteous and justified. God has the sovereign right to give eternal life to whomever he chooses. And to withhold it from anyone he chooses. And it is not our position and authority to judge God. But where we make our mistake, my friends, is always in this way. We think that because we see someone's evil actions, we have a tendency to do this. Not everybody does this, and not everybody does it all the time. But we have a tendency to think that when we see someone living a life of evil, evil, that they must be among the reprobate. That they may never be called to eternal life. And the challenge to all of us is, how in the world could we possibly know that that's the case? How could we possibly know that somebody who lives for 50 years could never be called the saving faith by the Spirit of God? The Spirit of God goes where it wills, and it does as God pleases. And so it is entirely possible for someone to live a reprobate-seeming life for 40, 50, 60 years, maybe right up until their deathbed, and yet accept, uh, hear the gospel, and obey the call of the gospel to obedience. Never, ever give up on someone that you you believe to be unsaved. Never withhold the gospel from people that you think are not going to respond to it because you don't know. And I don't know. And what a colossal, God will call all of those that he has elected to saving faith. He'll either do it through you or through someone else or in some other way. But what an incredible opportunity it is for all of us to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with everybody we meet in the hopes that they will hear it and obey. It doesn't mean we converted them, it doesn't mean that we changed their lives, it means that God changed their lives and we got to see it happen. What an incredible thing. Another mistake that we commonly make is that we think just because we share the gospel with someone that they should obey it. That's not our decision. Conversion is not our responsibility. Conversion is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit of God. He draws the elect into saving faith. He is the one who changes hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He is the one who renews wills and changes spirits. But the caution that we should get from the passage that we're looking at is that we should never go out into the world and think that these people are beyond our care or beyond our control. And we have to consider that in some very practical ways. What do you do when the homosexual couple moves into the house next door to you? Do you treat the people as though they are something less than having been made in the image of God? Yes, they are sinning. Yes, so is the young man and the young woman who are living together apart from marriage. Who are just going to pass off one another, use one another for a while for, for gratification and then pass one another off to the next interesting person that comes down the pike. What about the person who is constantly sinning by the, with the, uh, the sin of drugs or alcohol? What about the person who commits murder? What about the person who commits theft? We can go on and on and enumerate every sin that is called a sin in the Bible and we can see people around us who have committed those sins and in fact we can look in this room and we can find people who have committed many if not all of those sins. What what did our Lord tell us? If you break even the slightest bit of the law of God you have broken it all. Whatever you do, whatever you have done that is a violation of the law of God brings, apart from the saving grace of God, death and destruction. But all were made in the image of God. In the image of God created he them, male and female. Created he them. And he gave them dominion over the earth and said to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. It doesn't mean trash it. It doesn't mean destroy it. It doesn't mean not do your recycling on Tuesday morning. It means subdue it, order it, maintain it, care for it, make it productive for your children and your grandchildren. The thing that we're, the only opposition, the tension that we have is that we are not yet perfected, we are not yet glorified, we have not yet arrived in terms of sinlessness. That will not happen until Christ returns for his church and we are taken into glory forever, united in body and in spirit. Not the intermediate state where soul is separated from body for a time, but united in body and spirit as we were created. God formed Adam out of the clay and he breathed the breath of life into his lungs, uniting soul and spirit. We are an embodied people. We were created to be embodied. To think that we are only a spiritual spiritual people and the body is just some useless carcass we haul around with us is a Gnostic thought. It is a heretical thought because God created people united in body and spirit. And so let us approach our neighbors with recognition of the fact that they are created in the image of God. Even the most heinous of them, even the most obnoxious of them, even the people that we find it hardest to have a conversation with deserve, because they are made in the image of God, to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is their only hope of salvation. Their only hope. And who are we to deny anyone? the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to get behind a pulpit to preach the gospel. You don't have to, get into, you don't have to stand before 500 people. You can share the gospel with a person at the laundromat. You can share a, God, the gospel with a person in the bank teller line. All of these things are so hard because we're caught in this tension between the holiness in which we were created, the goodness in which we were created, the distortion of our image, and the the ongoing restoration of the, the fullness of that image, which we call sanctification, being made more and more holy. We were separated and made holy in our regeneration. We are being progressively sanctified from that point on. Entire theology books have been written on these subjects, my friends. But to live it is much harder because we forget. We forget who we are. We forget where we came from. We forget who folks around us are. We forget why God created them as well as us. And even though we all fell in our first parents, we forget that God, in his glorious grace, In his infinite wisdom, for his own purposes, chose to elect some to bring some to saving faith. I don't know how many some is. Do you? I don't know if some is 500 billion or if some is 50. I have no no idea. All I know is that, that we should be hoping for the ingathering of the fullness of the kingdom of God so that our Lord will return for his church, that all of this stuff that we slog through every day will pass away and the gloriousness of creation will be be returned in the new heavens and new earth to come and that we will live embodied as people Who get along with one another without any strife, without any rancor, without any difficulty, without any confusion about men and women, without any confusion about who our children should be, what pronouns we should use, what anything else that we struggle with as a society. No wonder people are confused. They don't know who God is. They don't know God. They don't know Him because He has not yet, they have not been regenerated yet. Some might never be. But our hope as a people, our hope as a society, our hope as the people of God is that as many people as possible will hear the gospel and obey it. Because when that happens, this world will become a better place. And instead of confused people driving the agendas of our countries, instead of confused people trying to drive the laws of our society, it will be the church of Jesus Christ that once again is restoring a proper balance to the way the world works. Under God's common grace, this subject is so incredibly simple, but it is so incredibly complex, because we have to deal with people in the context of our our. Remember that. Remember that what what um, God said. While they, we were yet while we yet stunk in our sins and trespasses, God loved us. God loved us first. And because God loved us, we were given the ability to love God. We should and must want that for everybody we've ever met. It's so incredibly important. But God will preserve those that he has called from darkness into light to the praise of his glorious grace for all eternity. And those of us who stand on the promises of God for salvation, we don't know that we're elect apart from the promises of God, but those of us who stand on the promises of God for salvation have the assurance of knowing that we're going to pass from this life into the next, and the next life is not going to have any of the garbage that we we deal with and face on a day-to-day basis. And what a glorious place that will be. And yes, things will change. There will be no more marriage. There will be, you know, we don't know. We've gotten glimpses. We've gotten promises. But we have one promise that stands sure. That God is God. And God will accomplish everything that he has decreed that he will do. It is as if it is already done because God said it would be. God does not break his promises. My friends, as you go forth from this place... I be encouraged, be exhorted, be called, be strengthened in the knowledge of who you are. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, if the scriptures don't carry this meaning for you, then pray that God would give you the faith to receive them according to His grace, that you too would be changed and converted and made part of the kingdom of God. We'll be praying that for you. We don't know who you are. We don't know... The deep secret We don't know the deepest secret thoughts of every heart, but oh, how those of us who stand on the promises of God want to see the kingdom grow. The How whole, the whole, those who stand on the promises of God want to see every space in this, this auditorium filled to overflowing that you might have to build a bigger one because there isn't room for all the people who come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed each and every Lord's Day and many days in between. So, my friends, knowing that man was created in the image of God, give the gospel to all in the hope that they will obey. Let us bow before our Lord. Gracious God, thank you for the work of your Spirit and implanting the meaning of the words, that you have given to us by your Spirit in the Scriptures, in the hearts of all here assembled. And forgive me for any foibles that I have, may have committed in, in expounding that word this morning. Father, as we go forth from this place, let your gospel raise in us the desire to share it with everybody that we meet, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of our fears and insecurities because it is your gospel that will call the elect to saving faith and fill the numbers of the heavens in the new heavens and new earth to come. And let all who continue to preach the word, preach it diligently with the expectation that your gospel will save those that you have chosen from before the foundation of the world and given into the hand of our Lord and our Savior and our King Eternal, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.